Hello, welcome to the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we learn and grow from the stories and skills, ideas, and insights of farmers and agrarians. We talk philosophy from the farm. Our guest today is Emmett Van Dresch, farmer, author, and craftsman. He raises Christmas trees at the Pierpont Christmas Tree Farm in Massachusetts. Together, we'll be discussing the origin of his farm, how he raises Christmas trees, his daily podcast, rules for social media, and so much more. This is really a truly fantastic interview, which covers a lot of ground, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation today. So before we get started, I just have to say, I really did enjoy your book. It was very well written, and you're one of the people I interview for this show that I actually want to ask, what books do you enjoy <laughs> reading? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, boy, that's a, that's, I, I read a lot. Um, and they range from right now I'm, I'm rereading Gardening When It Counts by Steve Solomon. Do you know who he is? No, he I started, don't. He started Territorial Seed Company back in the day okay. and then sold it. And now he lives in Tasmania, of all places. He used to be in the U.S. And he's, he's probably the, the wisest person when it comes to thinking about gardening as opposed to farming that I know of. Um, and reading his books has, has been the single most important thing to make me a better gardener and farmer. Unfortunately, I didn't find his work uh, when I was a vegetable farmer, but, uh, um, but I found it when I was a, a gardener and responsible for a demonstration kitchen garden and teaching a lot of workshops. This book, Gardening When It Counts, and also the book, The Intelligent Gardener, are some of the, the best, most in-depth articulations of what matters and what doesn't when it comes to gardening and some of the, the misconceptions that we have um, around, around those things. So, so that's what I'm reading right now, but I also read, uh, what did I read? <laughs> we, I picked up a book at a summer vacation spot that was written in the seventies and it was part of a series that was basically, the premise was basically if you sent James Bond back, uh, through time and space to alternate universes, what would he do? Oh, dear and, goodness. Uh, those- those are quite entertaining as well. I believe okay. they're called the Richard Blade series, and there was something like 27 of them. I, so. so I'm actually a huge James Bond fan, so yeah. <laughs> I have to read this. Yeah, they're, you know, they, they're, they're surprisingly fun, and for, you know, for a book that you pick up and you just want to have something to read for two or three days while you're decompressing, they were excellent. I'll have to definitely pick it up. Well, before we get too yeah. far down the road here with the podcast, again, Emmett, welcome to the show. Would you mind sharing a brief biographical sketch with the audience? <clears throat> sure. Uh, I grew up in western Massachusetts. I still live in western Massachusetts. I, I did not think I was going to be someone who l- lived half an hour from where they grew up, but um, as chance would have it, uh, I met my wife, and she also grew up near near me. We didn't know each other growing up, but it was such an obvious opportunity to raise our family near our parents that we we moved back to the area to do that and that's probably the best decision we've ever made um it shaped everything else i used to be a tall ship sailor so i got obsessed when i was a teenager with sailing ships and those tall ship gatherings that would happen um and for a while i was was doing that professionally and then i met my wife and she was a farmer and 
we tried each other's things. She hated sailing, too authoritarian for her. And I tried farming. And, and, and it was always thought that farming was what I was going to end up doing when I was done sailing. I just didn't realize it was going to happen at 22. And so we farmed together for a couple of years and then realized that we really didn't want to farm together. <laughs> so we were very, we've been happily married for 13 years. Uh, we ran the farming together experiment for two years and realized that it's, we are excellent partners, but we are not good business partners. We're very different in how we approach things. So we, we, we moved off the farm that we had been leasing at that point and, and just happened to move into this old farmhouse 10 minutes down the road uh, where the, the old-timer had a Christmas tree farm that he'd, he'd started in the 50s. And he was 78 at the time, and he was looking for someone to take over the farm. And we said, no, 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 we don't want to farm. We just realized that we didn't want to farm. But it was 2008, and the recession had just hit, and we were 25 and didn't know what we were doing and had a baby on the way and were scrabbling together random jobs. And so eventually I said, okay, let me try it. And, and once I tried it for just a season working for him for a, for a pittance, I think he paid me uh, maybe $7 an hour, I realized that I really loved it and that it was work that was well-suited to my temperament. Is, I realize I'm sitting on my side porch and there's cars coming by. Is, that, is the sound Oh, perfectly too fine. Much for you? It, it's the, it's fine. Oh, having great. the background noise is part of the fun of doing this kind of thing. I've been yeah. having interviews when the <laughs> farmers are out in the field and you hear the donkey brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so we ended up taking over this Christmas tree farm, and, and I say we, but really it was me. My wife helps out a little bit here and there, but, but it's primarily what I do for work. And it's been, an, it's been an amazing thing to take on this, this institution that means so much to people, right? Christmas is a mm -hmm. big part of people's tradition and sense of continuity. And this has been that for some families for four generations. And so to carry it forward at a time when it really felt like it could go either way, it was teetering on the edge of getting out of control. And, you know, if he hadn't found me, I don't think it would still be here. Um, and so that feels really good. Along the way, we realized that we would not be able to buy the farm because the original farm was 25 acres. The trees are 10 acres of that. And uh, Al Pirapan, the guy who started the farm, built two additional houses on the land. And the way that he divided up the lots for the houses had everything to do with the legal road frontage and nothing to do with where the plots of trees were. Mm -hmm. So our trees were, are scattered across every single lot. And so in order to buy the farm, we would have to buy 25 acres and three houses. And that 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 immediately put it out of out of reach. So we tried, uh, yeah, we tried a number of different things, and we also realized. I mean, it could have been something that we would do and sort of lock our tie ourselves to for the rest of our lives, yeah. trying to finance this. But it, it was it it just was complicated by the fact that we had already invested so much that we knew we weren't going to have any real bargaining power mm -hmm. when it came to buying the property from him because he had us over a barrel. And that's something I talk about in the book is it's, it's one of the hardest things about taking over someone else's business is that even when everyone has the best 
uh, ideals in heart. There's just so much money involved that it's it is very easy to feel taken advantage of or to take advantage of someone without with the best intentions in the world. Mm-hmm. So we ended up buying a different house, 10 minutes closer to both of our parents, or closer to the valley where we both grew up. And it's a, it's a farmhouse, but only has an acre and a half. It's a home. And it turns out that that was the best move we could have possibly made because it opened up a lot of things in our lives. Well, it gives you some distance when, from the farm itself, which, as you talk about yeah, the book, which actually helps such make, a difference. Help, it helps make business decisions more clear. Like, mm-hmm. what is a good business decision is hard to see sometimes when you're living on the farm because it all gets tied up with, did I mow the lawn? Did I, <laughs> you know, did I burn the brush pile? And and when it's 10 minutes away and you only go there when you need to go there, you're much more hard-nosed about, okay, this needs to happen, mm-hmm. this doesn't need to happen. And so much on a farm we do so many things on a farm that don't actually need to happen. There's, there's a great example that is always in my mind by Gene Logsdon, the, the farmer essayist, mm-hmm. where he describes a situation where he, he thought to himself that he should be mowing this field that had come up with nut sedge and was going to seed in nut sedge, and he really didn't want it. And he never got around to it. And then a drought hit, and the only thing he had left to feed his sheep was this field with nut sedge seeds in it and it was great for them and it carried him through this hard time that he hadn't seen coming and he he uses this as an example of if i had done the work if i had put in the busy work i wouldn't i wouldn't have had this solution on hand and so sometimes not doing anything is more important than doing something mm-hmm. i think about a lot you actually give an example of that in the book also talking about how learning not to do something is one of the most important lessons you can learn on the farm because (laughs) once you make that action, especially if it's something like taking out a row of trees, there's no going Mm. back from that. The trees are gone. Mm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's, and it can be hard the way that I grow Christmas trees, I guess I should say for your listeners. So, so yeah, actually, so part of what makes our if you farm, don't mind, if we talk a little bit about your management methods for the Christmas tree farm, but could you also describe what most Christmas tree farms do? Because I know this shocks you, but the majority of the audience listening probably don't have much acquaintance with how Christmas tree farms are run. Sure. So, so most Christmas tree farms are these days are are plantations where. The trees are grown in relatively level pasture, at least somewhere you could get a tractor into. They're grown in straight rows, uh, in sort of clumps of rows with with tractor-wide alleys in between sort of every four or five rows. And they're in grass, and the grass is mowed every year, and the trees are sheared every year. And and it is an efficient way to grow trees on one level. My tree farm is a holdover to an earlier way of growing trees in which the trees are actually coppiced, meaning the first time they are cut, you cut them higher than right at the ground so that there's a couple layers of branches below your cut. And those layers of branches actually keep the stump alive, and it it continues to sprout. And so it'll put out many, many sprouts it's sort of in shock from being cut. And and my job as the farmer is not to plant seedlings, I don't plant anything, but to manage the growth from these stumps. 
And so of the 20 seedlings, uh, of the 20 sprouts that come up, some on the edge of the bark, some on the tops of the branches, some of the branches curve and start to become the, the growing leader. I, my job is to select the one that I think is the best that will grow the fastest in the right, you know, with the right proportions and to cut away the rest and also to manage the, the branches of the stump themselves because that's valuable for turning into wreaths. So what you end up with is a managed forest, and it's very, very different than your average Christmas tree. It's, it's, it's very wild, and that's part of circling back to not doing something. Part of what's hard about not doing something sometimes is that it, it can feel wild, Mm-hmm. And the part of me that likes a mowed lawn, that likes a tidy garden, can want to really deal with the situation. And what I've come to learn is that that the advantage is actually if I don't have a plan for what I'm doing, with, if I don't need something, like if I don't need uh, an overgrown tree for its greens to turn into reeds, then I shouldn't cut it down now because I might need those greens later on in order to to sell them later on. And so that involves accepting a certain amount of chaos, which is just not evident in, in your standard Christmas tree farm. The, the history, let me give a little history of Christmas tree yeah. farms. So 100 years ago, the idea of Christmas as something where you'd have a tree in your house had started to take hold in the U.S., and but most of the trees being sold in the cities were forest-grown trees, just from northern forests where people would go out and cut down conifers that were small, that were Actually, the right so age. So if I can interrupt here really quick, yeah. uh, what variety of tree is a Christmas tree? Because like, that's a question that <laughs> I have to admit I yep. never really thought of before. Well, so so that goes into the, the history of the thing. So historically, it was sort of whatever you could get your hands on locally, right, okay. which will be, be different depending on where you are in the country, right? Forest-grown trees uh, are just whatever conifer, and conifers grow all over the U.S., in the south as well as the north. Um, it would be whatever type of tree you'd have, you know, some sort of pine tree down south, some sort of uh, spruce or fir out west, some sort of fir or spruce up north. And then in the 30s, actually right around, right near my farm, was the guy who figured out this coppicing. Now, Native Americans have known about coppicing all sorts of trees in, in interesting ways that are different than how Europeans coppice trees, and they used coppicing for any number of purposes uh, to create material that was the right shape. So coppicing a conifer to, turn, to create the right shape, meaning a Christmas tree shape, is, is not really any different from what they were doing, but it was not something that was known by the Caucasian society. It had been lost. It had been lost, this idea that you could even do it. Mm-hmm. But this guy who, whose farm was about 20 minutes from my farm, named Linwood Lachure, was harvesting forest-grown trees for the Christmas tree market. And he noticed that a couple of them, where he had naturally cut them up high because he didn't need the stuff below and it allowed him to just cut once, he noticed that those stumps were still alive and putting out new shoots. And so he pioneered this way of growing Christmas trees off the stump, which is I call coppicing because it puts it in the context of this larger tradition. But the Christmas tree industry probably would know it more as stump culture. And stump culture 
caught on, especially places out west where uh, they're more drought prone, like in British Columbia, where there's large plantations that are that are coppiced in this way where the larger established root systems of the trees protects the stumps from drought. So most Christmas tree farmers will put out seedlings every year and a certain percentage of them die. Mm-hmm. Almost none of my trees ever die because they have a large established root system and so they're not they're not prone to all of those stresses in the same way. So Linwood Lesure was became president of the Christmas Tree Growers Association for a handful of years. And Al Pirapan, the guy who started my farm, knew who he was because they were in the same town. And and when Al was trying to figure out what to do with his old farm, which he had bought, which was a dairy and tobacco farm, similar to a dozen farms within a mile of his farm, were all mm-hmm. that same combination of a little bit of tobacco, a little bit of dairy. And his he knew he didn't want to do either of those things. He was actually an agricultural teacher back when ag was taught in in high school. Mm-hmm. He knew Linwood Lesure, and he said, I want to do this. So in 1953, he started planting trees. And early on, the trees he was planting were the trees that were in demand back then. So it used to be there was a lot of scotch pine, white pine, black spruce, Norway spruce. Those were the, the trees that people wanted. And so I have a certain number of those. But then it very quickly in the 60s to 70s, became balsam fir as the dominant species that people wanted and, and became really the the sort of classic Christmas tree that you think of is balsam fir. Okay. And most Christmas tree farms at this point have moved on to other species, con color fir, Douglas fir. Um, there's a handful of species that most other Christmas tree farms grow because they're hedging their bets against what people want. They want softer needles. They want a tree that will, they'll be able to harvest it a little earlier in the year and not have to worry about it uh, drying out as much. There's a number of reasons they want a tree that will handle warmer temperatures better. And because they're planting seedlings each year, they change the, the mix of their species. Because my trees are there and I've got what I've got, I have 95% balsam mm-hmm. and 5% these other species, which is actually great for me because the only species wreath makers want is balsam. Oh, and, okay. And a big part of my business is selling the the balsam branches, known as greens, to garden centers and other places that make wreaths to sell. And then I also make about 500 wreaths to sell each year as well. So I'm I'm harvesting the branches from the stumps Every three or four years, they grow out three or four feet, and then I harvest them back, and then they grow out again, and I harvest them back. So it's a real, there's a cycle that the whole grove goes through, and if you were to look at it in some sort of time-lapse cinematography, the way that you would do of a seed germinating, you'd actually see the sort of throbbing in the grove where paths fill in with branches, and then they're cut back, and then they fill in again, and they're cut back. And so for me, it's really helpful that it's balsam, because that's the stuff I can sell. So you kind of answered this question to a degree, but I'm really curious what the Christmas tree season looks like in terms of what <laughs> I, I, this is where, again, so you went from raising vegetables to yep. Christmas trees. I'm assuming yep. that there's a bit of a disparity between practices between one versus the other, but what yep. does a typical season for raising Christmas trees look like? Yeah. 
so first of all, I will say that uh, I, I feel rather lucky in that I get to do as l- I get I have the easiest season imaginable, and yet still get to call myself a farmer. I know what it is <laughs> to be a farmer and to work through the heat of the summer and yeah. work long hours and and be exhausted by November, uh, and and I get to essentially do the opposite. Uh, my season is from November 1st through Christmas. And ostensibly, I work every single day except Thanksgiving Day. Mm-hmm. Um, towards Christmas, I have a couple days that I could take off here or there. It used to be when the Christmas tree farm was most of our income, more than half of our income, maybe two-thirds of our income, I was trying to squeeze every last drop of time and energy out of this period mm-hmm. because we needed the money. Yeah. Um, and, and so for, you know, we've had the, whoa, big logging truck. <laughs> we've, we've had the Christmas tree farm for 11 or 12 years now. I can't, can't always remember. Uh, and my wife tells me that I consistently give myself an extra year every year. <laughs> uh, and historically, it's been a time where I push myself till I'm totally ragged, that I'm yeah. working as hard as I can. This year, I'm trying to not push as hard, in part because of the pandemic and the mm-hmm. increased child care that I need to be responsible for for our girls. They're, they're not in school quite as much. They're not with their grandparents quite as much. Um, and in part, in part because my wife is working for the last uh six years, she, she went back to school um, and is, is now a hospice nurse. And so for a bunch of years, I've, I was a sole breadwinner and holding down the fort and basically trying to earn as much as I possibly could. And this year, they, I have more responsibilities, and also there's just income coming in from other places. So mm-hmm. this year is actually an interesting year in that I am trying to see if I do if I do two-thirds to three-quarters of the work, do I end up with two-thirds to three-quarters of the money, or do I end up with more like, you know, three-quarters or a little more of the money? Yeah. And I think that might be the case. I think that the, you know, you the, as with most things in life, you get the most bang for your buck for the first 80%, and then, mm-hmm. the, you know, you spend 80% of your time trying to squeeze that last 20% out. And so I'm trying to I'm trying to find a more sustainable path forward, where I am not pushing my body quite as hard, and and frankly, where where it's fun. I mean, it's it, it's been fun since the beginning, but I think I have a tendency that many farmers have to feel like if we're not working as hard as we possibly can, then we're somehow doing it wrong or squandering an opportunity yeah. or something like that. And, and I'm trying to push back against that for myself. Um, part of it is that the, so the, the other thing I do for the rest of uh, my year is I carve spoons for a living, uh, which, is, which is a whole other saga. Oh, yes, but, I have questions for that later, too. Okay, great. And at one point, my my dad asked me. He said, "You know, your your spoon carving has become the much bigger part of your income for the year. Is there a point at which you think you just won't do the Christmas tree farm anymore?" And after thinking about it, I I said, "You know, probably not, because 
it really matters to me that we're carrying this place forward. But mm-hmm. but I do think I want to find a way to to just have it be almost a vacation where this yeah. work is a vacation from the other work during the year, and it doesn't feel like I'm ramping up and sacrificing my body and pushing mm-hmm. myself as hard as I possibly can. But that it's a it's a break. It's a seasonal break, and it's fun and. And I think this year is the first step in that direction, and I'm really excited about that. Well, I have to say you're having a really good attitude for 2020 compared to uh, a lot of people that I talk to. It's funny, in the non-farming world, shockingly yeah. enough, I mean, I've definitely heard some farmers complain about 2020, but by and large, I'd say the majority of the people that I've talked to uh, pre-pandemic and as everything was happening more of the farmers have actually been optimistic about what has happened since just in terms mm. of what it's done for their communities, uh, the the sense of community that a lot of people have since then, since they can't go farther than the community in a lot of cases and yeah. being able to get back in touch with local food, local food yep. has been booming since this has happened. And one of the things that I have observed in reading your book, uh, because I grew up working for a local apple orchard, was there yeah, a where, little, where, where do you live again? I live in Des Moines right now, but I grew up in southern, southeastern Wisconsin, northeastern Illinois. Oh, nice. Yep. So yep. my brother went to the uh, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, so yes. I know that area a little bit. Yep. Uh, I've had a couple of friends go to UW-Madison. Uh, I'll tell you what, great farmer's market in Madison. Yes. That is really, it, it really is like the, for... It was actually one of the first farmer's markets I ever interacted with, and I really? think it's set the standard for me ever since, which is a really high standard. <laughs> that That is. So I don't want to get too far off the rails here, but I am a little curious because yes. I've never been to Massachusetts. What is that farmer's market local food culture look like? So where, where I am, so Massachusetts has two really distinct parts. There's the part near Boston that is definitely like Boston and suburbs and everything you think that might be. And then literally geographically about halfway through the state it becomes western mass and western mass actually has one of the most thriving food local food economies uh, of anywhere in the u.s the connecticut river valley which i'm 10 minutes from the connecticut river uh is a major major agricultural area with some of the best soils in the country um and there's just a lot of farms in the area. So, so we belong to a CSA that's five minutes down the road that I worked for for a season that's a horse-powered farm that, where the oh, guy wow. is tremendously well-respected and, and well-known, and they do a fantastic job. Um, we moved back to the area right at the beginning of this resurgence of small farms, and many of those small farms are now have now become quite big, successful farms. Um, and so, f- for p- I think part of uh, part of why I why I seem a little laid back about the pandemic, which is maybe inaccurate. Uh, part of it is that we already had a fantastic local food scene, and so that mm-hmm. felt secure in a way that I reckon for many people it did not. Um, part of it was that my immediate neighborhood is actually quite close-knit because we had a tornado four years ago that caused tremendous destruction but also meant that we really know our neighbors and we've Mm -hmm. worked together to help each other. So so in many ways, we've had a test run of what that looks like. And, And the other part that I can't take any 
credit for is that I just got extremely lucky with the business model I happened to be pursuing with the spoon carving. Mm-hmm. I Because I don't have any local demand for my work, it was all online anyways, and so it basically was completely unchanged, and I could just continue doing what I was doing. So I got very lucky in that regard. Uh, so just getting back to kind of a question I was asking here is the institutionalization yeah. of the Christmas tree farm. I mean, it's fascinating to see how and this is what I was coming at from having the background with the apple orchard. I've seen where mm. it becomes that family tradition of people showing up yeah. year after year to yep. take, have that family memory. And I really yep. don't have much experience in terms of Christmas trees, obviously, but yeah. how long you said you've been 12 years. I'm assuming most of those yep. customers are coming year after year. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Every year there's probably 25% new, um, who show up and and try things. But yeah, it's, you know, at this point it's a, it's a lot of names that I'm trying to remember and usually failing to remember (laughs) each year. And, you know, taking over the farm originally felt like this heroic act that we were, you know, we were saving this thing for these people. And, you know, we were taking on this institution, this town institution that, you know, uh-huh. felt valuable and we were carrying it forward and and it was about us. And it <laughs> after the first year or two, it just became super clear that it wasn't about us at all, that it uh-huh. was about these people whose, whose presence made the place what it was, that, that sure, there's parts of the farm, about half of it is retail, is the U-cut grove, and half of it is the wholesale grove, but, but it's these people who come year after year and the experiences that they have and the, the ways that they walk through the trees and the just everything about them shapes what it is and carries it forward. And so it's, it, you, you become aware that you're just a steward mm-hmm. of this larger thing, and that is really not about you at all. And I think that that carries over well to life in general. You had a great line in the book that I actually wrote down. I'm not the hero in this journey, just a custodian of this part of their lives. I'm a Mm -hmm. big fan of the hero's journey in terms of just how its structure works in narrative. Yeah. But the thing that I have cautioned, and I've written like two or three articles at this point with this as the premise, the thing you have to realize is that you aren't the hero more often than not. You're simply a supporting character in someone else's drama. And once you have that attitude, it's amazing how much easier life becomes because you're not so consumed with everyone's watching me, everyone's waiting for me to do the right thing or mess up here or there. It just takes such a burden off you. Everyone's busy with their own hero's journey. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I I heard recently, and I only knew about Joseph Campbell and the, the hero's journey just a little bit, but someone laid it out, and I was surprised to learn that part of the hero's journey is the hero coming back with some uh, gift is the wrong way of putting it. Some it's like the some, wisdom, knowledge. He he brings something yeah, they're bringing back to something the back to the community in a way that feels like an an offering of service to the community. And I mm-hmm. think that that's a big part of the hero's journey that we don't think about that hasn't reached our collective psyche yet. Yeah, we we like to focus on the more heroic parts, not the service oriented <laughs> yeah. parts. You know, some reason. <laughs> So one of, I'd like to expand our discussion beyond your book and the Christmas tree farm, which is fascinating. And I do encourage everyone to go out and get the book. I actually did listen to the audiobook version, which I have to say big kudos on. 
Uh, Thank you. That was a, that was a really hard experience. I, I feel like I'm a good reader and I'm a good uh-huh. speaker and sitting in a soundproof room in the dark, <laughs> trying to control my breathing and articulate these Boy, I never learned what long run-on sentences I wrote until I tried to actually speak them perfectly. <laughs> I, 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 I immediately realized that my next book needs to be written like Ernest Hemingway in very, very short sentences <laughs> because it would take me five or six takes to, to get one of these sentences perfect. And it took three and a half days Okay. Because my voice would get sore and and change enough that the engineer who was I uh, was at his house would say, "Okay, you know, let's compare to the when we started." And oh, it's different. We got to stop for the day. It was a really humbling experience recording that. I'm honored you you listened to it. You're the first person I know who has told me that they have. Well, and that was one of the things I was actually really curious on is because I know you have a daily podcast. Did you yeah. do the daily podcast before recording the audiobook, or was this something that you did afterwards going, hey, I, I really like this idea of the vocal medium? I think I started it the fall before, and I recorded, I think it was like six months before. And I had thought for a while that I should have a podcast. I think not necessarily knowing what it was for, but feeling like it would maybe be easier than having a daily blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in a position where I felt like I had things that I wanted to share with the world and looking for an easy way to share them. <laughs> um, and I, I, just, as, just to be clear, my podcast is, uh, the bar is extremely low. So I'm sure y- you have all sorts of equipment and you're going to do a nice job of editing and you're thoughtful about how you put it out into the world. My daily podcast is literally me talking into my phone and then clicking two buttons and, and, and that's it. And, and it, it is as much an exercise for myself as it is something that I have any ulterior motive for, but I found it to be tremendously helpful in my own life, uh, in any number of ways. Well, and I was just so tremendously impressed that you do a daily podcast. I mean, I've been doing this podcast now, (laughs) for four or five years. I'll give myself an extra year. And yeah, yeah. That was a good plan. I always do it about, I think that I've only had like maybe three or four months that I've been able to do it weekly in general. It's always been an every other week show and yep. I, I love doing it, but dear goodness, trying to do it every week, I know would be a exercise is the yeah. phrase you use. And I think it's an appropriate one. So what yeah. was it that made you decide that you were going to commit to doing something like this daily? Um, so I thought about doing a podcast like this one where you interview people and it quickly became apparent to me this was two, two years ago, three years, two years ago. I can't remember how long I've had it. I'll give myself an extra year. Good idea. Uh, I just, it was clear to me that I didn't have the time to commit to that sort of, of quality thing where you you research a person and you have a thoughtful conversation with them that that I that I would not be able to maintain that again this was before my wife was working again mm-hmm. and I I was just pushing as hard as I could to earn as much money as I could to support my family and and I was inspired by Seth Godin do you know who he is Yes I do So Seth Godin has had a blog for 
10 years, maybe mm-hmm. longer, maybe, maybe 20 years. One of I don't, the OG I don't actually... blogs, I think. Yes. And it's a daily blog and it's, and they tend to be short and they're just, I, I really liked the idea of just being thoughtful once a day and putting it out there in the world in a very sort of non-aggressive way for people to take in if they want and and doing it in a way that had benefits for you whether or not it caught on with anyone else um, and I realized that that was probably going to be a path that I could maintain and I think early on you know I was trying to put in music in the background and, and very quickly all of the extra things that I was trying to do to make the production value seem better fell away. And in part, I felt okay about that because I was getting feedback from people saying it's actually the fact that we can hear you walking down the road and calling Mm -hmm. your dog. And, uh, you know, I tend to do it when I walk the dogs in the morning and sometimes I don't, but it it fits into my life really well in that regard. And walking and talking is, is, is helpful for thinking anyways. And, and I was hearing from people that they really liked how it was just me talking. And so for me, the formula that seems to both stick and be valuable to me, whether or not anyone else listens, is, is exploring ideas that, I, that occur to me in, a, in as thoughtful a way as I can where, where nothing is scripted beforehand. And I'm just, okay. you know, I generally have an idea that I want to explore and I explore it and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not great. And sometimes I totally don't hit the mark that I was thinking I was going to hit. And other times I find myself in places that I could never have thought that I uh, could never have thought of outside of just exploring it extemporaneously. And and it's taught me a number of things, not least of which is to to let go of failure and imperfections and just let it be. Um, and that's been really helpful in any number of ways in my life because, well, for example, I publish a spoon carving magazine. Mm-hmm. And every issue, there's always something that I didn't catch in the copy editing phase where I mess up. And, yeah. and one, one issue, I really messed up and somebody's picture was wrong in the contributor section. <laughs> and instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I need to recall all of them and reprint and there goes a couple thousand dollars and, you know, I just, I just posted a, a, a correction on online in a funny way that made fun of myself and let it go. And everyone was happy with that and let it go as well. And we move on. And that, I don't think I would have had that perspective if I wasn't inoculating myself daily with this kind of imperfection, deliberate imperfection. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's something that I listened to and I really enjoyed. And it's funny we're having this conversation because I was recently talking about this with another guy we've had on the show, Scott Hebert, Mm. something that he and I have often discussed is, so he did daily vlogs for a little while on his YouTube channel. Yep. And I, I'm one of those people that I really struggle to try putting something out there unless I have literally ironed every little piece of it I possibly can. I will work Mm -hmm. on an article for over a month until I've found that I just have it just perfectly. And he'll look at something, he'll go, dude, you had it like three drafts ago. You could have just thrown it out there and seen how it turned out. I'm like, yes, I know. But, 
And that's one of the things that yeah. impressed me about your podcast is it really does have a very fresh feel to it. it. It feels very real and it is enjoyable to hear the sound of you calling your dog in the background. And I am just a little curious because again, I'm a production content guy. When you're sure. working, talking about which ideas you're going to discuss, do you have yeah. any kind of schedule in advance? Do you like keep a list? These are the things that I'd enjoy talking about. You said you don't script it in advance, but do you have some kind of yes. guideline? Um, I, have, I have a list of broad topics. I don't okay. tend to work out the details of any particular thing unless, unless I feel like I need to in order because I have specific things that I want to cover. There have been episodes where I have wanted to cover you know, these six ideas that pertain to this broader idea, and then I'll try and write out the six ideas and refer to the list as I'm talking. Okay. In general, what happens is I'm driving somewhere, an idea occurs to me, I'll pull over to the side of the road and write it down in my little pocket notebook, Mm. and I'll try and write down enough that I actually remember it and remember the sort of broader context of what I was thinking, meaning I write down a sentence, not just a phrase. But I don't do more than that. And and sometimes I've had times when I was driving when I wrote down five different things in the course of half an hour because when you're driving and you don't have the radio on, sometimes your, your brain yes. gets into that deep state. Um, other times I have... I have gone into my daily dog walk with nothing in my pocket notebook to talk about. And and during those periods, I tend to try to... I, there's about a two-minute drive from my house to where I walk the dogs. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just sort of think through what's happened in the last couple of days that is interesting that I could talk about. Because I had the realization a couple years ago, pretty early on in the podcast, that it worked far better in terms of bringing people in to have a story, to lead in with a story, to mm-hmm. be able to say, this thing happened yesterday, and you know, here's exactly what happened in the particulars, and now we can pull it out to the more general. And, and I think that that's just a universal human truth, that we're drawn to stories and we remember stories. And so it makes it relatively easy for me to say, okay, what's the story of what happened? You know, my, the thing I did this morning was my, <laughs> my daughter failing to really follow through on her chores and do them well. And that story became uh, an episode about how it matters to what we actually do and not what it was that we intended to do or what, it, what we did on the, on the surface of things or, you know, the details of what we do matter. And, and I got to it from that story. And so that's how it happens. And occasionally I really clam up and can't think of anything. And then I either wait until later in the day when something occurs to me or I'll do, you know, occasionally I've done episodes that are about what do you do when you can't think of anything and just lean into that meta narrative. Well, I certainly enjoy it and do encourage other people to check out your podcast too. Again, that's it's the- called Emmett Audio for anyone because it's called Emmett Audio, which is the most basic name possible because I had at least enough foresight when I started it to realize that I had no idea where it was going to go. And I didn't want to pigeonhole myself with a name that would only allow me to talk about one thing. And I've even dabbled recently with thinking about renaming it, but um, nothing has really struck me as being more appropriate than that. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. I might change it at some point, but for now, just Emmett Audio, anywhere you get your podcasts. 
Well, that actually literally segues to one of the questions I had here, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. In the book, you actually have a wonderful bit on the difference of using your actual name versus a business name. Would you mind yeah. going into that here? Sure. So my name is Emmett Van Dreisch. It's a terrible name for anyone to try and remember or spell or recommend to anyone. And and all of my life, I struggled with the fact that the RMV and the SATs didn't leave a place for me to have a last name that had two different words in it, right? Uh-huh. You know, all, all of the automation in our life, all of the standardization in our life was a rebuke of my name. Um, <laughs> And and so I ran away from my name for much of my life when thinking about identities I might want to have in terms of a business. And when we took over our farm, it was pretty clear that it should just be the, the Pure Pan Christmas Tree Farm because even though that's not what Al called it, that's what literally everyone called it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was easy. But then when I wanted to create a business that was uh, roughly around my spoon carving, but just around sort of whatever else I might want to do, I kept trying to come up with these other names because I didn't want to use my name. And, and I came to realize that I was hiding behind the business name because at that stage in my development, it gave me more credibility than just me being me because I hadn't earned any credibility yet. I was just Mm -hmm. a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. My stuff wasn't that good. And I wasn't confident enough to lean into the narrative of this is me learning. Instead, I tried to pretend like I already was something. And I think that's the temptation of a business name is that it gives you some sort of cover to pretend like you aren't learning, that you already know what you're doing. And I didn't get any traction with that. Part of it was that I was just starting out on Instagram and, you know, it takes time. And part of it, I think, was that it smelled phony. And at a certain point, I can't remember why, I decided to change my handle to my name, my real name. And and without really changing anything else about what I was doing or how I was sharing, it immediately got easier and I started gaining more traction. And I think it's because people recognize you being authentically you and they respect it more than, than anything else. Because in an era where we can all put ourselves out online, especially if it's just you, uh, I think there's a lot of power that comes from reclaiming your name. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a lot of security in an era where people can make deep fake videos about you, making yeah. you say anything you want. Having you as yourself earnestly articulating to the world what you're about, I think is the, the greatest security that we can provide for ourselves is that offensive move of declaring to the world who we are and what we're about. And frankly, autofill has made my life easier as well because people (laughs) get my name partly right and it'll still show up. But it is ironic that as the person when I was in high school who never had a cell phone, you know, was going to be the hermit in the woods living somewhere up in Vermont, I am now of my friends have far and away the greatest internet presence you know i have multiple businesses that have websites i have i just have a presence um and that's 
um, interesting that I've ended up in that place without, I should say, feeling like I've compromised my values about it, but recognizing the ways in which we can use the Internet to to live in a way that, that still feels in accordance with, with how we want to live and not just use it the way it is used by so many people, but make it work for us. Mm-hmm. I have to say it's definitely been a fascinating thing as I've done this podcast and done more other things outside of it, the mm-hmm. Google factor. So in my regular job, I'm an organic inspector and I show up on farms and do their organic inspection. Every now and yep. again, I show up and the farmer is like, oh, so yeah, how long have you been doing the podcast? Then I think to myself, yeah. did I email him using that email? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty certain I didn't. And then eventually yep. I find out, yeah, they Googled me beforehand and I forget that there's all this stuff about me out there yep. already. And yeah. it's, well, I mean, and look at, and look at what I did when, when you reached out, right? So I, I looked at your, your account for the podcast, but then I immediately wanted to go and look at your personal account. I think we are, we're humans and mm-hmm. we, we relate to other, people. other humans as humans, you know? Well, and, I want to get into talking about the spoon carving, but this is a perfect area for us to just start talking about social media usage because you actually just literally published an episode, I think yesterday, talking Mm, about uh, the rules that you have for your social media usage. And I actually found it really interesting because I have been on a break, a hiatus from using Instagram and even minimal Facebook for the last two months. And it's really because the podcast is starting back up again that I know I need to get back into that yep. groove of things. And I'm just really curious, what are your rules and how did you kind of develop these? So I've had rules ever since I started, but I did the podcast episode about it yesterday. I think it was yesterday. In response to a really thoughtful interview I heard with Tristan Harris, who has the Center for Humane Technology and who was a, an ethicist at Google before he quit because he didn't like where Google was going. Um, that really made me think a lot about how, what responsibility we have to make these social media platforms be the way that we want them to be and not just the way that sort of human nature and, and the lowest common denominator leads them to be. So, you know, I think everyone has should have a rule about how public or private they want to make their lives and where, you know, how much of they share of their kids' lives or their other, you know, their, their partner or spouse's life as well. And, and that's a very personal thing, and I don't pretend to know. But for us, the, the line is, my wife doesn't really want to be shown all that much, although I want to show her. Uh, and, and we don't show our kids' faces. Mm-hmm. That, that's the line for us. But more than that, there is a way in which it would be easy for me to amass a much larger account if all I did was very clickbaity photos of tools and spoons and, you know, the, the sort of eye candy stuff. Mm-hmm. It, I would end up with a much larger, much shallower audience. And it's important to separate out the number of followers you have from the benefit you are getting from those followers, meaning what what is the benefit to your sense of community, what is the benefit to your business, what's the benefit to your soul of whether you're living life by the terms that feel right to you or not. And 
And I, I know so many people who have done that clickbaity kind of thing, and they end up feeling kind of disgusted with Instagram. Hold on, very large tractor coming by. No worries. Uh, <laughs> it's my neighbor Chris who has Morgan horses, mm. and he mows the pastures around here, and he has a collection of about four tractors, and I can always tell which one he's driving because <laughs> uh, they sound different. When I hear people feel kind of disgusted with Instagram and, and how it makes them feel, there's almost always an imbalance. And the imbalance either comes on the consumer level of how they're using it to consume information, um, and I'll get into that in a second, uh, or uh, on the production level of what information they're putting out into the world. And either one of those things can make you feel kind of disgusted with the whole thing. The antidote, in my mind, to feeling disgusted with what you're putting out into the world is to put out something that you actually care about and to hell with the consequences of whether people like it or not. And to that effect, I try really hard to use my social media account to share enough of my life that people feel like they genuinely know me. One of the biggest compliments people give when I haven't taught since the pandemic started, and I don't know if I'll go back to teaching in person, but when people would come in person and they'd say, oh, you're exactly who I thought you'd be and your place looks exactly how I thought it would look. And it's, you know, you're, you're in mm -hmm. accordance with how you present yourself online. That's a huge compliment. An amazing because compliment. It, yes, it is, because it means that I'm actually sharing my life accurately, which is harder to do than it, than it perhaps sounds. Um, and so I try to do that. And, and beyond that, I also try to think of creative ways to use Instagram specifically because I don't really use anything else. I've dabbled in everything else, but I really only use the one thing. I've also tried to think of creative ways to use Instagram to make resources that are valuable to other people, whether that's uh, you creating a hashtag that other people will find uh, useful as a way of, of learning the thing that they want to learn or as a way of gathering people together in some way. You can use social media in so many better ways than just trying to, to gain more clicks. Mm -hmm. um, and And then the other thing... So on the other side is the consumer side of it, and that is tricky as well because it's always so tempting to just scroll through stuff. And so one of the most helpful things that I've done has been following everybody who follows me who I can tell is a human. And I, I did that for a while when I realized that I was – really stressed out trying to stay on top of everything that everyone I was following was posting and feeling like I could never catch up and feeling like I was spending a lot of my time not really engaging with what people were posting, but just trying to make sure I wasn't missing anything, right? Just keeping up. Yes, just keeping up. And by following everyone who followed me, who was a human, what I did was all of a sudden I was following thousands of people and it broke my ability. It deliberately broke my ability to stay on top of my feed. And what it means is that I still interact with people's posts, but the way I'll interact with it is different. Someone will reach out and they'll say, Hey, you know, I have this question and then I'll go to their feed and I'll poke around a little bit. I'll spend 30 seconds, a minute, a couple minutes taking in what they've done recently 
and interact with them on a more meaningful level from there. And, you mm-hmm. know, and I have some friends there where I do try to stay up on what they're doing to some extent, but I am no longer trying to get back through my feed to the last thing I saw yesterday. Yeah. And that has been tremendously important to my sense of well-being. And so the combination of putting out into the world stuff that I think is actually helpful and meaningful and not not being passive in how I take things in, but actively deciding for myself what I take in has been the combination that makes Instagram feel meaningful to me and not just like a chore. Mm -hmm. I really do like those rules. And again, it's that question of, I think the really important thing here is the value. Because I think that people far too often, they look at social media, they don't look at how is this something that I'm actually contributing something of value to other people instead of trying to garner value for oneself. So I I really do like that. And we could keep going on about social media, I think, but (laughs) we need to talk about spoons. We do. So what was it that led you into this world of spoons, including having a spoon magazine, which it's called Spoonosaurus, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, like a dinosaur. That's amazing. But, but Spoonosaurus, yes. Um, honestly, it was needing money. Uh, it, was, it was having the Christmas tree farm and not really having anything else in my life in terms of, of making a living and realizing that I could sell things at the Christmas tree farm. And when my younger daughter was uh, at the toddler stage where you need to keep an eye on them because they'll die, but mm-hmm. you but you also want them to start to be independent and explore things. And you kind of end up following them around. Do you have kids? I do not, but I have lots of okay. younger siblings, so I've grown up watching yeah, yeah. this so, stage. So you end, up, you end up really with museum legs. You know that feeling of just sort of like yes. complete exhaustion because you haven't really done anything with your day? Uh-huh. Um, you know, you've just sort of been in a, wandering through a museum and then you're strangely exhausted at the end of it. That was my, those were my days when my daughter was a, a, a toddler. And, um, and I distinctly remember standing on our porch at the farmhouse at the farm at that time where we were, and we heated entirely with wood. And so we had wood stacked on our porch. And I remember watching her rolling around in the autumn leaves and thinking, I could be be making something that I could sell at the tree farm and that would be an extra $20. We really need the $20. Uh, and, and I had, I had made a handful of wooden spatula type things for our kitchen over the years, but I never really thought much about spoon carving in general. I, I in fact had a girlfriend in college where someone made her a wooden spoon in an attempt to woo her away from me. And I remember distinctly thinking, <laughs> how weird, what, who, who carves wooden spoons? <laughs> so it was not uh, a, a perfect fit, but I wanted the money. And I also quickly came to appreciate how just making one or two of these spatula spoon things a day at a time when I was otherwise in the fog of having a young kid gave me something that I could stack up and, it, and point to and say, mm-hmm. you know, I did this with my day. Yeah. And that became tremendously important mentally to me. And because I had the Christmas tree farm, I was immediately selling everything I could make each year. So it wasn't much. Um, but for every year, I'd stockpile stuff over the course of the year and then sell 30, maybe 50 things very cheaply. But, you know, a couple hundred dollars really, really mattered back then. Mm -hmm. And then 
fast forward a couple of years, I really wanted to quit this job that I had. I had a, a really nice job, the job where I was managing a demonstration kitchen garden and teaching workshops, but I was also managing the property for this nonprofit that uh, basically owns a bunch of properties ranging from tracts of forest to very fancy old houses around the state of Massachusetts. And the job when I started it was very independent, and it was perfect for me being the primary caretaker of our kids that I, I could work it around when we had childcare and I could do it when I needed to do it. And it was independent as well in terms of I got to decide what I thought was important within these large parameters, and then I just did it, and no one questioned. You know, they say, great, you did a good job. And that was important to me. And the leadership in that organization changed and they started to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze everybody. And I felt like, thankfully, I had the Christmas tree farm and this other business editing manuscripts with my father that I, that I just stopped doing recently. And so thankfully, this seasonal job was just a, it was less than a third of my income. And so it seemed reasonable to think, well, you know, maybe I could carve more spoons and, and try and sell them online or, or something. You know, I started, I was starting to see other examples of people who had managed to cobble together a living from this. And so it didn't mm -hmm. seem too far-fetched. And I, I quit my job felt really good to be able to walk away from that toxic situation and and thought I was going to thought I was going to have a lot of success. I hadn't been on Instagram yet, so I got my first cell phone and I got on Instagram and I thought I thought I was good enough that the world was going to recognize that I was good and come clamoring. And and the exact opposite happened. <laughs> you know, I worked really hard, and nothing happened for about a year, uh, really nine months, and it wasn't until about a year and a half that things really were starting to take off. Um, and so that first year I worked at our local CSA, the horse-powered farm, uh, a couple days a week on the harvest crew, and, and I, I, cobbled, I cobbled work together. And I had this crazy vision that this could work, that I could carve spoons for a living, and everyone around me, you know, was basically gently uh, skeptical that that was even possible. And at this point, I make five times as much from spoon carving as I made from that job. Wow. So, Congratulations. Um, yeah, so it, it has it has come to be true, and it has come to be the thing that has given me the most independence and the most um, options going forward and the most satisfaction in my life, and I'm so glad that I took the leap. And I should have known better. I should have, I should have known that it was going to take longer than I thought it was because I had started two other businesses, this, the, the tree farm and this editing business, and both of them took longer to take off than I thought they were. And so I had plenty of empirical evidence to tell me that uh, it was going to take longer than I thought it was going to take, and yet I think the allure of social media had me thinking that it was going to be easier and faster. And I don't think anything's easier and faster than you think it's going to be. Um, uh, but it, it, the process of doing it has made me the person that I am today. So I'm so glad I did it and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it any other way. Um, 
Yeah. Again, it is impressive to me because I grew up doing farmer's markets. I had farmer's markets for like five years. And so I would see yep. people with spoons every now and again. And it's not something that ever necessarily appealed to me, but I've been yep. so fascinated to see the culture that is yeah. surrounds this art and this craft. And the people yep. that love spoons love spoons. And yeah. So I'm just well, tremendously you know, I had done enough farmers markets as a vegetable farmer, and the fact that I had a Christmas tree farm where people come to me mm-hmm. had quite frankly spoiled me <laughs> to ever want to do to ever want to sell spoons at a farmers market. Mm-hmm. I tried it a little bit here and there, but it just became clear to me that when you are used to being the center of attention because you're the farm that has the, the early tomatoes and the, uh-huh. all the seedlings that people need and you're used to doing hundreds and hundreds of dollars, you know, every single time you're there, it is, and, and having you be the sort of spine of the whole thing, yeah. it is very different to go as a craftsperson yes. to one of these things. Um, and, and quite frankly, be, having the Christmas tree farm also spoiled me because my tree farm is on a dirt road that you wouldn't ever drive down unless you were mm-hmm. coming to the farm. And so when somebody pulls up, I know they're there to spend money on me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's just a matter of, of how much. And psychologically, that's so much easier because at a farmer's market, 95% of people are going to walk past you. And the 5% that does stop, 95% of those are going to chat and they're not going to buy anything. And I learned some tricks of how how to sell in person. And I think in the right circumstance... I could, but they're just, it, it's so inefficient mm-hmm. given the demand that uh, it very quickly became clear that for me, the, the, the right way to do it in terms of the way that, that maximized my efforts and the money that came in was to simply take orders mm-hmm. um, and, and, to, and do commissioned work for people, which a lot of spoon carvers shy away from, and I think this is true of sort of craft and art people in general, that they want to do what they want to do and then, you know, hope the world will want it. Mm-hmm. And I think I've somehow managed to do both. You know, I've become known for the work that I do, and then anyone who happens to want that will reach out to me and say, hey, I'd like that. And then I get to say, sure, you know, I'll add you to the list. It'll be six months. Mm-hmm. And And the... Having having that income in hand in in the books uh, has proven to be invaluable. You know, especially in a situation like this, going into a pandemic. Excuse my dogs in the background. There, neighbor just ran by. Um, because I actually didn't lose hardly any orders uh, from people in the pandemic. But even if even if I had the fact that I had a three and a half month wait list at the time that the pandemic started meant that I just had runway. Yeah. I had the ability to pivot and shift what I was doing and and increase the the efforts I was putting into marketing myself if I needed to in a way that somebody who was living market to market just wouldn't have that warning, you know, and wouldn't have that wouldn't have that runway. And so I think it's I think it's a tremendously smart way to do that kind of business. And the the other thing I think for your listeners who are farmers and are thinking of adding a well, 
I think I think your your listeners would be smart to add Christmas trees and wreaths to their repertoire, uh-huh. even if, even if they have to buy them from someone else, um, because it is such a lucrative thing. Um, I mean, I. Uh, I'm well aware that farming is is putting out money in the in the hundreds and thousands and getting it back five dollars here and two dollars there. With Christmas trees, you know, my trees are at the very low end of the spectrum of what people charge, and I'm still getting thirty five dollars per tree. Wow. Um, you know, and twenty to sorry twenty twenty to thirty dollars per wreath, um, and and so the economics just work out better. And I think if, if any of your listeners are farmers but also want to do some value-added thing or, or a craft that they do, rather than trying to just sell it at the market where your vegetables are doing well, I think putting in the effort to, to create an online presence where you can have a wait list that's separate means that you're truly diversifying your income streams and giving yourself more options going forward rather than putting all your eggs into one basket. Well, and I think that that is one of the elements that I really appreciated that you wrote about in the book was having uh, multiple enterprises on the farm. And I'd say there are definitely more operations these days that see that. Yep. But I still have to say I'm shocked at the amount of people that are like, oh, yes, we just do diversified vegetables. Well, that's great, but you're relying entirely on diversified vegetables and you don't have any other potential income streams. And yep. Yeah, it's it, you know I I'm the youngest of three, and I remember uh, reading or hearing somewhere about uh, how the youngest sibling is are, are are often the ones that take the most risks. I believe um, it. <laughs> I believe it too until I started thinking about it, and I asked my older brother, who's the oldest, who is very responsible. I said, "Does this does this seem right to you? You know, I mean, you clearly are the most responsible of us." And and he said, oh, yeah, I could never do what you do where you, you know, you work for yourself and there's no guarantee. And then when I thought about it, I figured out what wasn't sitting right with me, which is that I actually feel like the choices I've made and the ways that I've tried to diversify my income into multiple businesses and even within those businesses diversify into multiple things, right? Because with the, even with the spoon, I carve spoons for other people. I provide wood for other spoon carvers. I teach. I have a magazine. I, you know, there's multiple ways that I earn income from. I sell tools. I think I'm actually incredibly risk averse and I am doing everything I can to make it so that no one can ever fire me. No one can uh-huh. ever pull the rug out from under me That's to really a point, point where I'm vulnerable. If I had just stuck with the Christmas tree farm, well, there was a guy who, so when, when Al passed away last year, um, at 88, he, his family started selling off the remaining properties and by and large, there were already two, two of the houses were already sold to people who loved the fact that we were doing the Christmas trees and they wanted us to keep doing the Christmas trees that were on their properties. The third house sold to someone, same deal. The last three acres sold to a guy who just owned a lot of land adjacent to it. And I had actually had some interactions with him. We knew each other. We were cordial. He turned out to be a real jerk. Oh. And basically tried to squeeze me for way more money in rent than I was paying anyone else because that's the kind of guy he was. And, and I think if I had, if I had been in a position where the Christmas tree farm was my only income Mm -hmm. 
And if I had been in a position where he controlled all of it, right, where I only had one landlord instead of four landlords, mm-hmm. I would have been in a tight spot. And so I think, I think you, no matter what you think of any one situation, there's always going to be some leverage over it. And so the more situations you have, the more resistance you can put up to capitulating to that leverage over you. Um, and that's been tremendously important psychologically to me going forward in life because I never want to be in a position where someone can yank the rug out from under me and my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I do a lot to try and mitigate all of those possibilities. Have you ever read Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb, Things That Gain From Disorder? No, but I am a big fan of Tom Bilyeu of Impact Theory, and uh-huh. he talks a lot about it. So I'm I am familiar with the idea, and I love the idea. Okay, you should maybe articulate it for people, so though. I actually I hope that most people get it just from the fact that I talked about it because we refer to Nassim Taleb an awful lot on this show. But anti-fragile okay. is the general concept that if things that gain from disorder, so it's positioning yourself so that if you get better when things get worse, basically. You can take advantage of being in a degree of chaos. It's the idea mm-hmm. that uh, when, because you have diversified income streams, that when things like a pandemic hit, you can not only maintain but somehow thrive because simply yeah. through how you've been able to engineer your skills or abilities or the income streams that you can improve in the midst of when everything else is declining or at least shuffled, I shuffled. I also think that it's a, it's a, the way I think about it in my own life, it's interesting that you bring up just the very structure of how I've structured my businesses, but I, I think of it mostly as mindset, right? It's mostly the idea of being anti-fragile in the moment means figuring out how to... it's more than just being resilient. It's like, it's like, it's like a, it's like a robotic spider is anti-fragile because you can shoot away however many number of its legs, you know, can be chewed on by a dog as it scuttles across the floor. And yet it has so many legs that it's just totally fine and can keep operating as a little robot. I just saw this in a movie. That's why why the, the example is in my mind, right? Like some spy was using a robot that was shaped like a spider. And at first you're like, ew, it's a spider. Why would they need that? Can't they just get away? You know? And, and nope, this, you know, it turned out to be really helpful because a guard dog chewed on two of the legs and it was totally fine. And then, you know, when more of its legs got hurt, it just turned into a ball and rolled. And that mindset of of understanding that you have so many options that you have only tapped into the sort of obvious choices for right now, but it doesn't mean those are your only choices. And there's always an option going forward. You always have agency and power in your choices. I think it's so important. And I think part of what sets farmers apart from many other people is that farmers, I think, inherently understand this because we work for ourselves and, mm-hmm. and we understand the risks and opportunities and how, and how there are always more opportunities than we have time to uh, take advantage of them. And so we're always making choices of which opportunities we want to pursue, but that doesn't mean that those are the only ones. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I would actually make the argument that it's a mindset that separates a lot of successful farmers from less successful farmers. Uh, yep. Because I have met farmers that don't share that attitude. And usually I hear a lot about, oh, the woe is me is that this didn't happen and that didn't work out. And this is the reason mm-hmm. why they aren't where they should be. And those aren't typically the people that I have on this show because they're not thinking through the process. They don't tend to classify into the intellectual agrarian camp. And it really is a a good mindset to have. And I think that we could really talk about this stuff a whole lot longer. But Emmett, where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Ah, um, So you can just type in my name, Emmett Van Dreisch, and any number of things will come up. (laughs) <laughs> on autofill, exactly. My website is emmettvandreich.com. Uh, I'm Emmett Van Dreisch with underscores between the three parts on Instagram. And and really, but really, you can just type my name into Google and all the relevant things will show up. And once again, I'm definitely going to plug your book, Carving Out and Living on the Land, Lessons in Resourcefulness yeah. and Craft from an Unusual Christmas Tree Farm. Emmett, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's really been an honor. Big thanks to Emmett for joining us on the podcast today. I've actually already got the first book in the Richard Blade series ready for my Christmas vacation reading. So thanks for that recommendation, Emmett. I encourage everyone listening to check out Emmett's work. Links to everything are in the show notes at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash Emmett. His book is Carving Out a Living on the Land. Lessons in Resourcefulness and Craft from an Unusual Christmas Tree Farm, a book I can't say enough good things about. Be sure to get a copy either in hardcover or, as I did, on the audiobook. If you're new to the show, please subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast player of choice is. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and recently I found out the Audible app as well, also iHeartRadio. While you're there, please not only subscribe, but also leave us a review. That's really what I want for Christmas, letting others know how great the show is. Until next time, this has been Terrence Lahue and the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast reminding you to keep farming the dream.